Hello, today we're speaking with Ben Rubin, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Carbon Business Council. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks so much for having me here, James. Great. Dessert, could you tell us a little bit about the Carbon Business Council? Happy to. Yeah, the Carbon Business Council is a nonprofit trade association with more than 40 carbon management startups who are working to help restore the climate by removing CO2, utilizing CO2, and, and just a range of other ways of how we can deal with this problem of all of the legacy emissions we have in the atmosphere and, and rethinking how we approach CO2. We are a trade association of innovators. Uh, there's many early stage companies that are part of it because we believe that innovation and the approaches it startups bring to carbon management is going to be key for unlocking solutions for how we scale up to, to gigaton scale carbon management. And trade associations, I think you might be the first uh, trade association we've had on the podcast. And so they're obviously like you know, very, very strong levers for the spreading and the development of certain types of industry, certain types of technology and so on. You know, what drove the initial decision to start CO2BC? Yeah, well, we see innovators in the space and early stage companies moving forward very impactful solutions. But because policy is going to be so critical to getting to gigaton scale removal, we, we saw a need to bring these innovators to the policy table to make sure that the unique needs of startups were represented as, as government policies are being developed to move carbon management forward. And we did not want startups to be left out of the conversation. So we had conversations with dozens of companies to understand would a trade association be helpful? What types of services would be most advantageous to early stage companies? And across the board, there was a lot of excitement for for the types of services, the approach we put together. And, and we've been pleased with the stakeholder support as well of just people recognizing that startups do have such an important role to play in how we hit gigaton scale removal and, and how there can be a benefit to coming together and having a stronger voice. And so when you're having those early conversations, thinking about the first six to 12 months as you're developing the CO2BC, what were the kind of main commonalities, I guess, between different startups? Because as I look at the list of your members, some are obviously very focused on agricultural-based carbon sequestration. Some are more direct or capture. You know, there's a large variance in terms of the technological approaches and generally the business models as well. So yeah, so what, what were those kind of commonalities you recognized early on? Yeah, you're picking up on a great point there, James. One of the biggest commonalities actually across every single person we spoke with was the desire for the Carbon Business Council to be technology neutral. I think across the board, companies felt like it was too soon in the game to pick winners and losers and that we have to see what is going to be most successful, what where will the technology cost curve bend the most. And so there was a desire from folks to to not have any one technology favor too soon in policymaking. I think with that also recognition that as we look towards 2030, when we are hopefully removing gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere, that it will ultimately very likely be a blending of different approaches that, that's going to help get us there, both removing, utilizing the CO2, storing it. And so that was a commonality across the board, that, that tech neutral approach. And then a lot of the services that, that we develop having companies come together to be able to network, having companies better track the conversations happening in DC to understand policy. There was just, there was recognition that because the, the carbon management industry, you know, it is so locked into policy that there's a benefit to, to feed that intel to startups and, and to bring them to the, to the table to interface with lawmakers directly. And thinking about, as you have like a new industry, you often have like a larger, in essence, a B2B series of companies emerge to support that industry. And so when you think about what a company that makes sense for the CO2BC looks like versus one that's a little bit adjacent, makes less sense, 
do you have any kind of firm delineations over what's a great candidate to be part of the trade association versus something that might be a, a supportive set of technologies, but isn't core to your mission? Yeah, we are working to represent the the full value chain when it comes to carbon management. So as an example, if a company is removing CO2 from the atmosphere, and that could be through direct air capture or another type of technology, what is going to happen with, with that CO2? And that's where those types of B2B connections between companies is it being stored underground. Uh, there are companies rising on that challenge, thinking through geologic sequestration and how to make that happen. There are also companies thinking through if that CO2 is not being stored underground, if it's being utilized, can we help take that CO2 and turn it into jet fuel or turn it into a consumer product? And so really we see a value and, and think that we can help expedite the growth of the industry by forming these types of connections uh, across. And for us, it's also included marketplaces, folks who are helping to be a point of connection to, to someone who might be wanting to uh, buy carbon removal to help hit their net zero pledges. And then you know, the, the companies themselves who are, who are you know, who have the, those carbon removal credits that they can sell. What, I guess, what about, I guess, uh, kind of carbon accounting companies and software where they're basically going into often very, very large Fortune 500 companies and trying to measure the underlying carbon? And they will often have some sort of offsetting uh, functionality built into their software. Would those also be a good candidate? Yes, I, I think they certainly could be. For us, generally, a litmus test is does the is a company early stage and and help fall into this category of an in, in innovator in the space, which which tends to be early stage and growth companies. And do they have either a full or part of their company that has a, a focus and emphasis on carbon management? There are some carbon accounting firms that might be squarely focused on where measuring scope three emissions of a company, but but there are others you know who are specifically thinking through where accounting for carbon removal and management comes into the mix. And so I, I think the answer is yes there. And and for us, another litmus test is we were pleased when we rolled out that we released the ethical oath to restore the earth. For us, it, we're committed to both growing the carbon management industry economically, but also responsibly. And so we are looking as, as members come on to sign on to this ethical oath to restore the earth, similar to an ethical oath that doctors sign or lawyers sign, we we are pleased to have our members supporting the responsible growth of the industry, which you know includes affirming that removal should work in tandem with mitigation, that it's not a replacement to it, and, and some other tenants laid out in that oath. Yeah, and I'm actually just have the uh, oath up on the website, and we'll, we'll include that link in the show notes. Pretty sh- short, but pretty uh, comprehensive. It's about seven or eight statements uh, affirming the varying aspects of the carbon management industry, as, as you mentioned. And I guess when you were kind of thinking through when you were you know, writing this and, and partnering with folks to kind of get this list of seven or eight statements, I guess, what, 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 you know, were there any particular pieces that were more kind of debate worthy versus others? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And we were fortunately able to workshop this with a wide set of stakeholders, including startups and, and different groups in the space to get feedback. I think what was great about it is there was broad based alignment that there is a benefit to have the industry coalesce around a certain set standards to guide how the industry grows, again, invoking what lawyers have and, and what doctors have. When it came to carbon management, it having this affirmation that removal is not a replacement for mitigation. For the Carbon Business Council, we follow the, the, the science and the IPCC science says that we need gigatons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere, but it does not say that that removal is a replacement to mitigation. And so I think, you know, with an example like that, there was fortunately a, a lot of alignment where these statements were 
great to have enshrined, great to have written down, great to have startups signing on to and affirming, but largely, you know, they, they made sense for folks to, to back and stand behind. And so you mentioned earlier that this kind of focus on early stage companies, and I mean, that's, that's partly due to the type of industry, right? Because it is such an early stage industry, the idea of like a Nori or direct air capture type technologies being deployed at scale for two, maybe three years ago. Was, was pretty uh, like surprising, I think, to a lot of folks. And so things have come on in leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. But I think one of the things that, as you think about the growth of companies, a lot of startups that, that I can interact with, they don't really think too much about trade council, councils as you go along. For my own startup, more in the renewable energy space, I, we actually did just recently sign up to uh, one of the large-scale solar energy trade organizations. And it's definitely not designed for companies of our size, uh, I would say. And that's fine. We're like, we are definitely getting value. Um, they have some good conferences and all that kind of thing. And so as you were kind of looking at other you know, trade councils that are out there and trying to build one that's particularly beneficial to early stage companies who are generally fairly technologically advanced, I guess what were kind of things that you looked at and said, okay, we want to definitely incorporate these elements of other trade councils and we want to avoid these other ones? Yeah, that's a great question, James. I think for us, one of the goals is, is, as early stage companies know, I mean, time is one of the most precious commodities. There are so many time constraints when you're getting a pilot up and running, working on raising a, a seed round. And so I think for us, one of our goals was to be work to be time additive for companies. I, I think an example of that is something like tracking the latest policy developments or legislation floating or what is happening, you know, in, in conversations that are taking place on Capitol Hill. If we're tracking that, for, for one carbon management company, we should be sharing and tracking that for more. And that's the type of thing that is saving a company time. If, if they can uh, read our news, see our digest, and they don't have to dedicate staff time to do that themselves, I, I think it's an example of how we want to try and fundamentally add time back into the day of startups and early stage companies. And depending on where in the growth spectrum that company might be, that might be actionable intelligence for them to want to engage in a policy conversation and have more substantive conversations. It might be something that they fold into a pitch deck as they think about their business plan and, and how they're going uh, to scale and grow and, and nest this policy into their long-term business plans. And so, you know, we startups might internalize, take different steps based on the actionable info we provide to them. But for us, just generally time back in the day of companies was, was a, a guiding principle for us, recognizing the, the time constraint that a lot of companies are up against. And going into that uh, policy piece, I think that's pretty meaty part of what any kind of trade association or trade council engages in. And because this is, again, top of mind for anybody in the industry, right? Like people are thinking about the questions around measurement and verification and which technologies are moving faster or slower and how you price carbon and all these kind of things are just like very, very wealthy developed in terms of underlying conversation. But you mentioned Capitol Hill. There's been a year of ups and downs trying to get a climate bill through. I mean, just this week, we did get a, a positive sign from Senator Manchin, but we'll, we'll see. You know, I'm, I'm not going, I've been hurt before, right, as we all have. So I'm not going to kind of believe it until we kind of get to that point. But as you think about some of those kind of larger legislative kind of movements, how does the CO2BC you know, see themselves or how are you kind of operating within that kind of larger climate bill framework? Yeah, another great question, James. 
we want to bring fundamentally one of our primary goals is to bring innovators and startups to the policy table because we think they're so essential for bending that technology cost curve and helping us scale up to reach gigaton scale carbon management. We we want to make sure that they can be a resource to lawmakers to share information that, that can be technical resources as well as understanding and, and starting to hash out what types of policies are going to be advantageous for this tech neutral approach that can help startups to thrive and, and grow. And we're seeing some of that in the in the legislation that is being floated right now, where there's just a breakthrough on if that passes. Some of the amendments to 45Q, as an example, a tax credit, where some of those amendments help more increase the eligibility where an additional set of companies working in carbon management can can be eligible. And so it's examples like that where we're pleased to see that. Carbon Business Council as as an additional example of how we might engage or, or the types of things we're looking at. We provided an endorsement to the bipartisan Quest Act. And that is where we're excited to see that that's a bipartisan climate uh, legislation. It, it shows that there can that carbon management can be a bipartisan climate solution. And we're also pleased that it proposes expanding federal funding for multiple forms of carbon removal. Again, taking that tech neutral approach that we think is going to be so critical to help startups really scale and grow. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like 700 pages of this bill were dumped uh, this week. And we actually like internally did do some reading of it. A lot of control effing, like we didn't actually like read anything <laughs> yeah, close, yeah. but, but, you know, solar, carbon, um, these kind of terms that kind of see uh, how those things interact. And I think one of the, I guess, somewhat hot topics when amongst at least some part of the environmentalist community, which is kind of surprising to me how this has become a hot topic, but you know the use of carbon sequestration as some way of like maintaining fossil fuel dependence. Now, this is not something that I personally much stock in. I think that we need all of the above and then 10x that to have any chance of really hitting these kind of longer term climate goals. But how do you think about some of those arguments that occur around carbon sequestration, CCUS, and similar types of technologies as being things that potentially extend the runway of fossil fuels and some of these other non-sustainable methods of you know, fueling the economy? Yeah, good question, James. I think for us, that's one reason why we think the ethical oath to restore the earth is so important. That oath affirms that removal is not a replacement for the important work of mitigation and that ultimately can work in tandem with it. And we see the issue, you know, as just that, that following the science that the IPCC has reached this conclusion that we've delayed reducing emissions for so long that that work of deep decarbonization continues to be more critical than ever. And so many of the provisions in the uh, inflation, inflation Reduction Act that was passed help, help get us there with electric vehicle tax credits, renewable energy, so many of the other things that, that it's proposing of how we reduce emissions. But as we're doing that, removal also becomes this essential option and essential to be focusing on scaling it up today so that we can get to gigaton scale by the time that the IPCC models are, are showing that we need to be there. And so ultimately, I, I think that it is a, a, a yes and, that it's a working in tandem, that we can have both. And through one policy that the current business council supports is is net uh, twin targets where in a net zero plan we're seeing how much someone is hitting net zero or net negative commitments through mitigation and how much someone is hitting it through carbon removal and so ultimately again it's that's one example of how we can see this working in tandem which is ultimately i, I think 
both what we'll need to stay within the goals of the Paris Agreement and, and what, what can help assuage concerns that removal is not a replacement for that important work in mitigation. And talked a little bit about you know, the policy side of things, but then also the supply, right? Like the companies in that you work with, those 40-odd companies, they are providing a carbon removal or carbon, carbon sequestration service of some sort, and that's the core product they're building. But then you have on the demand side, at the moment, we do seem to have way more demand than supply in terms of carbon removals. And that, a lot of that has been led by RFPs coming from the Stripes and Shopify's and Microsoft's of the world. And that, I think, has been a really powerful lever to uh, kickstart this as like a, a nascent industry. But not that many companies have done that, right? We're probably talking about half a dozen to a dozen companies who are buying up all of the quote-unquote high-quality carbon sequestration rated uh, offsets over the last couple of years. How do you think about how that's going to evolve on the demand side? I mean, is it going to be where the marketplaces will individual members of, of your council potentially start to build their own you know, sales and marketing teams and they're actually selling to the demand side directly? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think how we can strengthen the business case for carbon removal offtake is a great question. And it's going to be something that's obviously vital to the success of the industry. I, I do think that we're seeing some of the carbon removal happening through marketplaces. We're seeing some carbon removal purchases happen through direct buys. And we're seeing you know, the possibility that as we think about hitting net zero targets, that that obviously is going to be uh, contingent on mitigation and reducing emissions, but recognizing that that for the you know that final mile or those hard to abate sectors in in a in a net zero pledge, that's where carbon removal will come into play, and and we're seeing that on both government side and private sector side. And so I think as more plans are coming together for how to hit net zero targets, we will be seeing this increasing amount of recognition about where carbon removal and carbon management can come into the mix. Yeah, on that. So, you know, one of the things when I started looking into the carbon space, when I was looking at different ideas for my next kind of startup, and again, ended up going in the, in the clean energy space, but it went pretty deep on carbon offsets and all the varying technologies um, for about you know, six to 18 months. One of the things I, I was kind of quite surprised by was there was this like massive existing industry of what's called renewable energy credits or RECs that are traded mostly in California, Canada, and in the EU. And it's what's called like a regulatory market for carbon, but it is in the, this particular case dependent on renewable energy. And then they have what you're what are called the voluntary carbon market, which is when an individual or a, like an entity will say, I'm going to offset my carbon in a particular way. I'm not actually required by anyone to do that. I just want to either give directly back in a positive way, like a company like Microsoft, right, who is committed to completely removing all the carbon it's ever emitted in the history of the company. That's not done for business reasons, I don't think. That's entirely done through the kind of ethical reasoning of the internal company itself. But what you're also seeing is people using offsets as a way to grow market share or retain talent and all these kind of things. But that voluntary market is still very, very small. How do you think about how the voluntary market could potentially become a regulated market? Because the regulated market for Rex is absolutely massive. I think it's hundreds or thousands of X what the voluntary market is today. Can we, will we have a voluntary market for the next you know, five to 10 years? And, or should we be trying to get a regulated government-run or state-run uh, market in carbon sequestrated credits as quickly as possible? Yeah, good question, James. And I do think as we're thinking about 
how to create business models for carbon removal, you're, you're certainly hitting on something important with voluntary carbon markets. The Carbon Business Council currently has a working group on voluntary carbon markets. We'll be publishing a white paper in September with recommendations for how voluntary carbon markets can be strengthened to include more carbon removal options within those markets. And for both, I, I think in those voluntary carbon markets, there are open questions that you're touching on around a, a common set of definitions, how to ensure uh, verification of removals that are entering into voluntary carbon markets, how to also ensure that that verification process is, is somewhat streamlined. And so recognizing that voluntary carbon markets will continue to be here for the foreseeable future, we, we do think it's important to strengthen and optimize those markets. Uh, has been, it is encouraging to see some of the cases in the U.S. in California with the low carbon fuel standard and some of the work that California Air Resources Board is moving forward, some of the work happening in the EU with regulated markets, that there's growing possibilities on both the regulated markets and the voluntary carbon markets side of thing to help carbon removal scale up and grow. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, especially large organizations, right? They want a number and then they can build processes around that number. And the more regulated that number is, the more they're likely to build the internal processes and so on to actually meet that. So that all makes a ton of sense. One of the things I was looking through your website and kind of get a better understanding is I came across the Institute for Carbon Removal uh, Law and Policy, which I believe is out of American University. Um, could you speak a, a bit to how that institute kind of interacts with uh, CO2PC? Yeah, the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy is there. They are housed out of American University and they are a wealth of resources for things on carbon removal, have a lot of great explainers and one pagers and reports on their website. I am a uh, research fellow with the Institute. So there's, you know, the line is open with them to think through, are there research gaps within the carbon removal ecosystem that we should be thinking through? And so uh, that is a, uh, so have, have a line open with them in that capacity and, and they're a partner of the Carbon Business Council working with them and, and would encourage folks, if, if anyone's not familiar with them, to check out their website to read up on some of these just great, you know, different explainers, one pagers of the resources they're providing on. What is direct air capture? What is ocean-based CDR? And just some of those great resources out there, you know, in the public domain to bulk up knowledge around these complex issues. Are there research gaps? Like, where would you love to see, you know, smart people doing more research in this space? Yeah, there are certainly many research gaps within the the carbon removal ecosystem, and I think that, and and they're important to solve. They're they're important to answer, and I think it speaks to where there's an opportunity for startups and early stage companies to be a resource for some of the research as it takes place. But there's both the open research questions around hard tech. How can we lower the cost of certain carbon removal technologies and, and make them more affordable? There's research questions around the governance so that we can ensure that carbon removal does scale up responsibly and, and what that looks like, what, what the most beneficial forms of community engagement will look like when projects are being cited and built out. And then there are research questions around what is that best verification system for voluntary carbon markets that is both rigorous but streamlined. And so there, there's a host of research and open questions to answer, I, I think, across different disciplines. And I think one that continues to be important is the, the IPCC has affirmed time and time again in multiple reports now the importance of carbon removal, but continuing to understand how much carbon removal we need when that is obviously you know an underlying part of it that, that helps underpin how much carbon removal are we talking about, where do startups need to be going. And, and there's Similar alignment between 
different models that are being run by the IPCC or the International Energy Agency. But just again, the, these wealth of open research issues, we're pleased to see that startups can move forward on R&D, on scaling up the projects, on bringing projects to market as these important research questions are answered and addressed. And I guess some of that research also intersects with the capital side of things. So there's been a pretty decent amount of venture capital in particular going into uh, carbon-focused startups over the last two years. And I've talked to a few of those VCs. I've also talked to a few of those kind of carbon startups. And one of the things that sometimes there's a bit of a struggle with, especially on the VC side, is they often don't have the ability in-house to confirm the science. And so you'll sometimes have something that's like, it makes sense, right? So like there's an intuitive grasp of of the concept. But then in other cases, it's like, okay, does this even work, right? And so I think about things like enhanced weathering, which is this kind of absolutely fascinating type of carbon sequestering technology, but personally never done the research into understanding how it might scale, what it might take, uh, how much it sequesters relative to other use cases, all those kind of things. And so how do you think about how startups can better communicate display research chops and so on to investors who often will only give maybe two to three hours before they make a seven-figure decision on on a given startup's investment? I do. It's a great question. And I think this speaks to efforts that are taking place right now to reach commonality around measurement, reporting, and verification, MRV, having a clear set of standards in place for for what we're talking about. How can we measure the CO2? How can we verify that that CO2 is being removed? Having those types of methodologies will be so important. But that is a obviously an immense and complex question to answer, recognizing that there's so many forms of carbon removal out there, from enhanced weathering, like you're talking about, to direct air capture, to ocean-based carbon removal, and, and many other forms of it. What does that MRV look like? But, but moving forward on that, having, having data available that's showing what, what carbon removal is working, what lessons are being learned, that will ultimately help to strengthen the industry and ensure that we are continuing to march towards this gigaton scale removal by 2030. Yeah, the, the MRV question is absolutely fascinating to me because because there's so little MRV, particularly across certain types of carbon removal technologies. Generally, those carbon startups are, are carbon removal startups are like the most up to date, cutting edge companies to do the actual measurement as well. But then you kind of get into a world where are we vertically integrating the sequestration, the measurement, and the price setting, the market piece, which a few companies have done. And I can be understand why those companies have done that. And I think it's been so far a net positive. But I do think as we get larger, there's going to be have to be this role for independent MRV, ideally startups, companies who are they are actually making money on the basis of the accuracy of their estimates, versus having all these things necessarily vertically integrated all within the same company. Yeah, I think that what's great is how many bright minds are actively thinking through these complex issues right now around MRV and and thinking through the different business cases, if it will be vertically integrated within companies, if it will be outside. And and I think it's it's great to see how just how this is evolving. I, I think there's increasing recognition across the board that the sooner we can have good and and clear and streamlined sets of agreement around what MRV is going to look like. The, the faster will we'll, or not the faster but but the faster and stronger will be able to help scale up carbon management absolutely and then the, I guess the other piece is because we already talked a little bit about the, the kind of capital side so there are aspects so some 
startups make sense for a certain type of funding and like the classic quote unquote software startup Silicon Valley company has tends to have pretty high margins, right? So 70% plus margins. They tend to be very, very software based. So low capital costs. Most of the costs are in the people themselves. And that venture model is also built around lots and lots of bets and only a few shoot to the moon and the rest generally fail. And one of the things I think that as I look at climate tech in general, and I think carbon removal and carbon sequestration companies are definitely part of this, we definitely need lots and lots of bets, but often the technology and the novel use of a technology is contained within a single company. And if that company, for whatever reason, and most startups fail, does fail, how does that affect actually that technology being set back for that particular direction versus just that company not working out for all the millions of reasons that startups don't work out. And so one of the things I've been thinking and talking to a few folks about is what are other capital allocation or capital investment structures that might make more sense for companies in climate tech versus traditional VC? And you you have project financing, you have various types of debt instruments and so on. How do you think about the current landscape? You know, is it fit for purpose for carbon removal companies, carbon sequestration companies, or do we need to start getting a bit innovative over the financing model itself? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously financing is such an important nut to crack for how startups can have the resources that they need to help it dig a ton scale. It's been encouraging to see private investment coming into space, both through VCs and also the, some of the corporates you were mentioning who are, who are buying carbon removal to help uh, scale and grow the industry. What the Frontier Fund is doing, uh, essentially with a model of advanced market commitments, a similar model that was used for vaccines for COVID-19, is another great way to help grow the industry. And in addition to these private sector dollars, we are seeing support from the government to help support research of technologies that's coming through the Department of Energy, through ARPA-E. And so it is also great to see the government investing in research to help answer some of these complex questions about, again, how can we expedite the pathway to get to durable and strong carbon removal by 2030? And if I think back to the CO2BC, what are your kind of aims over the next year or two? Yeah, well, we are we are excited to grow as the industry grows. And so we've, we've had many companies reaching out to us about joining the team. And so excited to be expanding and, and bringing on new members in the weeks and months ahead. One of our central goals is to be bringing startups to the policy table. And so we will be doing just that over the next several months, attempting to weigh in and inform policies that can help startups to, to scale, grow, and thrive. And in the process, we will also be working to ensure, again, that carbon removal not only grows economically, but also responsibly. And so that will mean continuing to elevate and lift up that ethical oath to restore the earth and thinking through what responsible growth of the carbon management industry will be looking like. And then if I think about the the space, you know, you have your 40 or so members today, but we need um, like lots more, right? You know, if, if some kind of smart potential founder, early team member of, a, of an early stage startup is listening to this, where are areas of innovation that we just need a lot more people building? Now, are there specific areas that are underrepresented within the carbon removal space? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what's encouraging about carbon removal right now is this idea, and, and this isn't trying to think in the energy department's carbon negative shop, where they've set a goal to help have carbon removal happen at $100 a ton or less by a certain year. And, and that is taking this tech tech-neutral approach that's emblematic of the Carbon Business Council as well, recognizing that there are multiple pathways that we can get there. 
Uh, one great resource that I would point out is that lower carbon uh, VC firm in the space who invests in carbon removal startup just put out a blog post recently highlighting some emerging forms of carbon removal that they are interested in funding and supporting. And some of these, you know, are, are, are probably newer news for folks who, if they're, even if they're tracking carbon removal conversations, I think it shows how many promising forms of removal investors are looking to fund uh, that might be scaling up. And, and it's for a reason like that, that we're pleased to be taking this tech neutral approach where we are excited to see in the next few years, are there breakaway solutions? But we think right now at this juncture in 2022, it would be premature to say, you know, that that one solution is going to be more successful over another. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more kind of cross-pollination of talent between, I guess, conventional or traditional software and hardware startups and people who are in the labs developing these technologies. I actually run a climate meetup in, in New York City, and it's been kind of remarkable meeting some amazing research scientists out of Columbia University in particular who are working on carbon sequestration technologies. And they're like, can I start a startup? And, and they're like, and then they're like talking to people who are, you know, putting together a, like a Slack competitor, or, you know, Zoom. And they're like, oh, these guys don't know anything. <laughs> and they're like building a startup. It's like, oh, you, know, you are one of the foremost domain experts in the world about this type of carbon uh, sequestration, carbon removal. Um, you absolutely can be building a startup if, if you so wish. And I think having more folks who are in that kind of startup world about trying to build at scale are interacting with people who actually know the science in a really deep way means we'll, we'll start to get the best of both worlds. I totally agree with that. I, I think creating those types of points of connection and synergy can really help to unlock and accelerate the growth. And just before we finish up, you know, you've been working on the CO2 BC for a while now. What's been most surprising that you found since uh, since joining and setting up the CO2 BC? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what's been most surprising, I think really just seeing the the dedication that innovators or founders of companies have that they're bringing into the carbon management ecosystem has been, it's been delightful, surprising and inspiring to see. Uh, we have some successful serial entrepreneurs who have started multiple successful companies, not necessarily in climate, who are now coming to climate, uh, but just seeing the level of talent and dedication being focused on this issue, it's, it's encouraging to see. And it's, it's a pleasant surprise that so many people are, are following this IPCC science and working to rise to the occasion. It is a tough nut to crack about what it will take to get to gigaton scale removal by 2030. We think that innovators are, are the ones who are going to be positioned to lead the way and help get us there. And, and it's, it's, it's great to see them rising to that challenge and rising to that occasion. Yeah, I always tell people who are like pessimistic about our climate future to say, if you want to feel a bit more optimistic every day, directly work on these problems. I was kind of like, and a bit of a funk about all these things and then actually started working on it. And so far, haven't actually had a, the profound effect on the climate that we all hope to have. But just by working through the problem, trying to improve every day, it actually has a massive positive kind of internal effect as well. And so I think for anyone listening to this who does feel maybe a bit of despair, a bit of hopelessness, like actually working on these things uh, in any place, right? It could be a startup, it could be on the policy side, activism, whatever it may be. Um, is actually, I think, the number way to start feeling more optimistic and feeling like you're making some positive progress. Fully agree with that, James. Yeah, I think it's encouraging to see what startups are doing and exactly what you're hitting on. It's to solve climate change, it will take multiple folks working on multiple issues, whether it is on that policy side or some of those other areas you're talking about. So so yeah, doubling down on that. Yeah, Ben, it's 
absolutely great uh, chatting. I really enjoyed the conversation. Before we finish up, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? Yeah, good question, James. I would say if folks are interested in hearing more about the Carbon Business Council, just that they can go to carbonbusinesscouncil.org to learn more. We put out a bi-weekly newsletter with updates and intel happening in the space, so would invite folks to sign up for that. But also invite folks working in carbon management to take a close look at the ethical oil to restore the earth. Signatures are not limited to members only. We think it's important to have multiple folks sign on to this ethical oath. And so just invite folks listening who are also thinking about carbon management, also thinking about what it means to grow responsibly to, to take a look at that and consider signing could be a good fit for them. I will include the link to the oath and those other links in the show notes. Thank you, Ben. Excellent. Thanks so much, James. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.